brace yourself. We're about to get some really difficult parts of Inferno. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. And we have been walking along with our pilgrim in Canto 19 of Inferno. And with Virgil, I shouldn't forget his guide, should I? No. With, with our pilgrim and Virgil, we've been across some of the eighth circle of fraud. We've come to the third pouch in Canto 19 of Inferno. And here we have heard a denunciation of the church. And we know we are going to find out something about the church because our pilgrim and his guide have descended to the bottom of this evil pouch, one of the Malabolja, that has, in fact, the sinners stuck upside down in holes with fire dancing on the soles of their feet. So now we're going to meet one of them and everything is going to become much more difficult, much more interesting, and much more daring. So let's get to it. Lines 46 through 63 of Canto 19. Oh, whoever you are with the up part of you stuck down like a fence post, you poor soul, I began to say to him, it's your move, if you can make it. I stood there like a friar who hears the confession of a perfidious assassin, the sort who, after he's tied up, calls the priest back to slow up his coming death. And this one cried out, Are you already standing there? I mean, seriously, already standing there, Boniface? Then the writing has lied to me by several years. You already so sated by the prophets for which you didn't even fear to seduce the beautiful lady by ignominy and then the raper. I became just like someone who after lots of mockery and without really understanding what's been said just stands there and doesn't know what to say back. So Virgil said, tell him straight off. I'm not that one, not the one you believe I am. And I thus replied, as I've been told to do. We're going to stop right here at this moment, and we're going to save what this sinner upside down in the hole says to the next episode, because he's going to go on. Of course, you know he has to go on. He's already been so unbelievably insane that he's got to go on from here. So let's start in this passage. It's going to take us a while to get through it. This is probably going to end up a fairly long episode of the podcast. Sorry about that. Just much to be said here and much to be said to set up the next episode, which is the corker of all corkers. Well, at least until the subsequent, which then is really the corker of all corkers. So, um, Let's just get going with it. The passage starts, Oh, whoever you are, our pilgrim saying to this soul upside down in the hole, with the up part of you stuck down like a fence post, you poor soul, and notice the slight bit of commiseration or slight bit of sympathy there, you poor or you wretched soul. I began to say to him, it's your move if you can make it. Now, we know this is a churchly figure. It's important to see that, and it's important to see the slight move towards sympathy. I think I argued, in fact, I know I argued in a previous episode of this podcast that part of the reason we don't see the butts and crotch of these figures upside down is to preserve a bit of their dignity. And I think this you poor soul or you wretched soul should be taken in the same spirit as that. That is, our poet behind our pilgrim still has some reverence for the church. However, you may have read comedy and you may know who this is. But it's important for us right now not 
to know who this is because this soul is not so far named. And I think it's important to see this passage not knowing exactly who we're talking to. You can't really identify somebody from their calves and their feet, can you? Well, okay, maybe some people you can. Maybe some football or soccer players you can identify by their calves, but you can't identify many people by their calves and their feet. So we don't know who this is, and I think it's important to know that. If you've already read comedy, you already know the answer to this. You know who this is. But again, let's keep it in the dark, even if you know comedy. And think about how Dante is keeping it in the dark. Is Dante speaking paraphrastically in this passage? No, he's not, because he's not giving us yet enough information to make an identification. Remember this whole technique of paraphrases to walk around? You have to give some information so that slowly I come to understand you're talking about Dido or Aeneas or for gosh sake, Virgil, when comedy starts out. You you have to sign of walk around the figure, dropping hints who it is, so that I finally learn on my own, because I'm learned enough, to put the hints together to say, oh, look at that, that's Homer, that's got to be Homer walking toward us, or oh, look at that, that's got to be so-and-so. There's not enough information given here for a proper paraphrasis. So this is not paraphrastically said. Instead, it's withheld. And it's important to see that, that the pilgrim walks up to this figure upside down and says basically, you know, sorry about your condition, but it's your move if you can make it. In other words, you got to start talking first because I don't even know who you are. I can't even hardly address you. Let's look at the next little bit and I want to skip over it and go on and then come back to the next three lines, but let's just start and read those three lines. I stood there like a friar who hears the confession of a perfidious assassin, the sort who, after he's tied up, calls the priest back to slow up his coming death. We're going to come back to that. And this one cried out, promise not to do the silly voice, are you already standing there? I mean, seriously, already standing right there, Boniface? Then the writing has lied to me by several years. Now somebody's named. It's just not the guy in the hole. It's Boniface. And it jumps right off the page. In fact, I think Dante wants us to see this so clearly that the figure upside down in the hole says the phrase twice. Are you already standing there? Are you already standing there? Boniface. I gave it a little more emphasis by adding, I mean, seriously. But essentially, if I wanted to be totally accurate to the Florentine, I would just say, are you already standing there? Are you already standing there? Boniface. And that repetition of the phrase lets the word Boniface just absolutely jump off the page because the other words become rather opaque or transparent as they're repeated. And it's Boniface the Eighth, the Pope. Who is Boniface? Boniface VIII succeeded Celestine V in January of 1295. He was elected in 1294. January of 1295, he became Pope, and he died not very long thereafter in October of 1303. Boniface, Dante's great nemesis, was allied with the Black Guelphs and with France. Remember, Dante is a white Guelf, and Dante has nothing good to say about the French crown. Boniface alienated the very powerful Colonna family. He, they had a heavy representation in cardinals as well as a heavy representation in the papal bureaucracy, and Boniface alienated this very 
uh, rich, austere, and well-placed family, the Colonas, much to his detriment. He alienated them by his ascension to the papacy. He also alienated a very strict sect of the Franciscans. So he's promoting schism in the church, both politically with the Colonna family and with one of its orders, the Franciscans. Boniface VIII slides all the way through comedy. There are four references to Boniface in Inferno. We've briefly already seen him in Canto 15 referred to as the servant of servants, the one who transferred a homosexual bishop uh, from one position to the other for political and personal gain. Then we also heard him obliquely referenced in Canto 18, the Canto right behind us, when Dante spoke about the Jubilee year and how people passed over the bridges, um, well, the one bridge in particular, toward the castle, and people stood on one side to go one way and stood on the other side to go the other way, and that whole bit of the passage. That's an oblique reference to Boniface's Jubilee year. And Boniface will come up once again, way down in Canto 27, in a particularly nasty way. But here he is, four times in Inferno. And in fact, just to play this out fully for you, there are four references to Boniface in Purgatorio, and there are four references to Boniface in Paradiso. He's going to last all the way out to Canto 30 of Paradiso, where a particularly damning reference of him will again be mentioned four times at least in each of the canticles. He is all over comedy. He supported, Boniface did, Corso Donati and the Black Gelfs. He aided them all in their coup attempt that eventually sent Dante into exile in Florence. He opposed, Boniface did, both Edward I in England and Philip IV or Philip the Fair of France. He opposed them because both of them, Edward I and Philip IV, were taxing the clergy to pay for their various wars. He produced a papal bull in 1296 that claimed that secular leaders cannot tax the clergy without papal permission, thereby trying to assert papal authority over temporal affairs or over secular affairs. If you know anything about Dante, you know that's going to make him very uncomfortable because Dante is going to continually argue for a kind of, we would now say, separation of church and state. Dante would not use such Jeffersonian words. Rather, Dante would say that there are two spheres of influence. There is the church and there is the state, and they should each exist in their own sphere and by Boniface attempting to rein in Edward I and Philip IV or Philip the Fair, he is then asserting papal power where it shouldn't be, that is in the political realm. By the way, even though he basically said you can't tax the clergy without my permission, he eventually had to give up on that because the very powerful Colonna family lived on imports. And when Philip heard that you can't tax the clergy, basically Philip stopped all goods coming from France to the Italian peninsula. The Colonna family was suddenly strapped for money. They put the squeeze on Boniface and Boniface ultimately relented. This is an oily political figure. There is more to be said about him and his dealings with secular authorities 
authorities. He is in constant trouble over the course of his life, sending out various bulls. He eventually gets almost kidnapped by an emissary of the French king. Um, he's at that point, the Colonna's in conjunction with the French king attempt to seize him. He is saved from that, but dies not too long after that. Maybe even that hastened his death, although there's no proof to that. This is a figure who got involved in all kinds of political intrigues from Sicily to Naples on up to Florence. He desperately wanted control of central Italy with its banking interests. He desperately wanted to align himself with the French king. The French king is becoming much more than what he had been, which is just the mayor of Paris, essentially. And he is becoming a much more powerful figure. Boniface is attracted to him. This is a very complicated figure. And here he is, expected in hell. Let's go back to that bit of I stood there like a friar. So before Boniface is named, we get that three lines, the tercet that says, I, the pilgrim, stood there like a friar who hears the confession of a perfidious assassin, the sword who, after he's tied up, calls the priest back to slow up his coming death. So the idea here is that we've got somebody who's going to be executed for their crimes. And, you know, they call the priest back not because they're so interested in being religious, but they just know that they, if they keep confessing, if they keep the priest there, then they can't get beheaded or dug upside down in a pit, as sometimes assassins were and other criminals were and buried alive. In other words, he can keep delaying. But everybody points to this particularly strange passage because in it, Dante himself, the pilgrim, seems to act like a father confessor, accepting a confession. And remember, we've already had a moment in this canto in which the pilgrim has confessed to us his confessors, that he broke a font in a baptistry. So there's all kinds of torques and inversions going on here. If you think about this, I stood there like a friar who hears a confession, this is a particularly redolent passage in the face of Boniface's constant attempts to uh, rein in or to keep in check secular leaders because what's happening in this tercet? A secular person, Dante the Pilgrim, is able to hear a confession. In other words, all of that reining in that Boniface tried to do to secular authorities is here blown up as a layman, not a clergy person, but a layman stands there ready to hear a confession from somebody. And this figure blurts out his confession, not about himself, yet it's coming, but instead about expecting Boniface. You do catch, right, that this is a pope who is going to end up in hell. A pope in hell. I can't say that enough. We may have seen a pope in hell up amongst the neutrals. We may have seen that Celestine V up there. You know, I tended to argue for Pontius Pilate for various reasons as that figure amongst the neutrals. Maybe it was a pope up there. I still doubt that designation. But now, no question about it, pope in hell. And it's Boniface VIII. Let's go on in the passage. Don't miss that this is actually funny. I know it's really historically fraught. I know it's larded up with meaning, but don't miss 
the comedy going on here. And I mean comedy by comedy, low comedy, the humor. Dante is being mistaken for his enemy. Here Dante's come down the slope. Virgil's carrying him down. He's got to one of these holes where the figure's feet, we're told, are particularly red, particularly intense punishment. And this figure thinks that the person standing there is the figure standing there's arch enemy. It's as if, let's say, we have a modern sequence in which how can I say this? Where can I put this? Okay, let's say we have a modern sequence in which Churchill, <laughs> Churchill is walking across hell and he wants to see some figure upside down in a hole. Churchill from World War II. And so Churchill approaches this figure upside down in a hole with flames on his feet. And the figure in the hall says, is that you, Hitler? Churchill is being mistaken for his enemy, Hitler. I don't, I don't want to overweight this and overdetermine it with a Hitler reference, but I'm trying to say that there is a bit of comedy here and a little bit of tongue-in-cheekedness. Tongue-in-cheekedness? Did I just say that? Sure. Okay, tongue-in-cheekedness from the poet because he is letting the pilgrim be mistaken for his own arch enemy. There's another problem here, but we could talk about this more and will in the next passage. And that is, remember, our journey is happening in the year 1300, around Easter weekend in 1300. And I just told you Boniface dies in 1303. Given the dating, not of the writing of the poem, but the dating of the journey of the poem, Boniface is not yet dead when this journey is going forward. He is dead when the writing of the poem is going on, but he's not yet dead here. So this is a particularly audacious stroke to predict his damnation with no chance of repentance. If this is going on in the year 1300, this journey, if this figure, upside down in the hole, identifies the pilgrim, mistakenly identifies him as Boniface, Boniface is not going to die for three more years. You know, in three years, people could repent. They could have a change of heart. They could change who they are. They could come to some kind of meeting of repentance, as we say in the South. They could come to Jesus at any given moment. And this seems to argue that there's no chance of that, right? Is this determinism that somehow Boniface is already damned and damned as long as he is in existence? I don't think so. Is this overdetermined writing? That is, that the pilgrim and the poet, particularly the poet in the background, is just larding it on really thick. I mean, Boniface is so bad he has no chance of redemption. I don't think so. I think it's just sheer audacity. It is an audacious bit to say that a pope is going to end up in hell before that pope is even dead. You're kind of negating any future repentance automatically. And I think Dante is being unbelievably brave. Heresy is all around us. Theological rot is all around us. It could be a very fraught passage, and yet somehow I think the humor of it and the realism of it save it. After all, what does this figure say? Are you already there, Boniface? Seriously, are you already standing there? Then the writing has lied to me by several years, and don't miss the humor of this. Clearly, the damned read the future. There was a long tradition in comedy that claimed that 
only the heretics see the future. Remember Farinata and he talks about, I can see far off. Remember the whole discussion with Farinata the heretic? And I can see far off, but when time finally ends at the second judgment, the future will be closed and our knowledge will be closed. And so we get this idea that they can see what's happening out there, but they can't see what's happening right next to them, which is why they're always asking questions about what's going up on earth. And for a long time in commentary, there was a theory that only the heretics saw far off. I think this passage tells us automatically that that's not true. It's the damned because this figure in the hall says the writing has lied to me by several years because you're here before I thought you should be here. The writing tells me that you're going to be here in 1303. So there is a little bit of a determinism there that you're going to be here in 1303. But yet here you are right now. But let me point one more thing out to you right there. The writing has lied to me. Notice that he doesn't say the book of the future. Every single commentator refers to the writing as the book of the future. That's great. And I agree. But the word in the Florentine is just writing. The writing has lied to me. Notice that writing can lie. That writing, or at least we might be able if we weren't careful to think the writing was lying to us at the moment at which Dante is condemning a pope to hell. Notice how all that's weaving up into super levels of irony in which this pope is justifiably put down in hell. And yet at the same time, we have a brief that maybe writing could lie. No, it can't lie. No, because this isn't Boniface. It's our pilgrims standing there. And let's move on in the passage. Are you already so sated by the prophets, this figure says, for which prophets, that's P-R-O-F-I-T-S, not prophets as in future tellers, but prophets like uh, money. Are you already so sated by the prophets for which you didn't even fear to seduce the beautiful lady by ignominy and then to rape her? The beautiful lady is the church, and this completes that opening simile. That simile that opened this entire canto, remember you turn the beautiful things of a bride into money and gold, the things that should be for a bridal's gift, you you change it all. And now we kind of come all the way back out and that metaphor resurfaces. This is such an incredibly complicated structure. That metaphor resurfaces and we know by beautiful lady, that he's talking about the church and the church itself and how the church operates and you seduced it, which means we're back with the earlier evil pouches of the seducers and then to rape her. So we're, ba we're back with all those sexual sins that we were in for the first two uh, pouches of fraud. Notice how this is being all woven together. Notice the metamorphoses that are happening here underneath us. Notice the question of turning something beautiful into money. Profit, the mitre metamorphosis that is the root of fraud. Notice how all of that is being tied up in the passage. Notice how masterful this is. You are pulling metaphors from the opening of the canto into this passage. You're pulling previous bits of fraud into this. You're keeping your Ovidian themes running. These are a lot of balls in the air. And Dante is just smart enough to juggle them. I became just like someone who, after lots of mockery and without really understanding what's been said, just stands there and doesn't know what to say. I love these three lines. 
way back in the day when I was in grad school. And I realize I'm old. I remember when brontosauruses ruled the earth. So I'm old. So way back when I was in grad school, there was a constant theme in medieval studies that medieval writers knew nothing of personal interiority. That is, the, the kind of trope of criticism was that modern notions of internal emotional space are unknown to medievals. I gave a paper at the International uh, Medieval Conference in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Yes, Kalamazoo. It's where the largest medieval conference in the world happens every year. I gave a paper at the Kalamazoo Conference once on the Parsons Tale at the end of the Canterbury Tales, and I argued for the Parsons Tale as a move toward increasing interiority and also a check on that interiority. I don't want to talk about why I said that about the Parsons Tale. I just want to say that I'm saying interiority, and I got kicked by the old dons in the room oh my god there was this chaucerian from harvard very prominent man he took me to task he stood up and took my paper to task for daring to think that interiority was part of medieval thinking well let me tell you i'm going to point you out right to these three lines I became just like someone who, after lots of mockery and without really understanding what's been said, just stands there and doesn't know what to say back. I am in the pilgrim's interior space. Maybe it's not Freudian space. Maybe it's not Jungian space. Maybe it's not modern psychotherapy space. But I feel it. Here's this figure. You've come down the slope. You're standing in front of this guy. His feet are super red because it seems like the flame is worse on the soles of his feet than anyone else. You stand there like his father confessor, and he suddenly screams out to you, Are you Boniface? You know, was I lied to? Are you ready? Have you already been damned to hell? Are you tired of, you know, sucking the church for all the money it's worth and even raping it? And then our pilgrim just stands there because it's so shocking because you don't know what to say because re remember my beautiful son Giovanni because you have such reverence for this thing. It forms the core of your art. And here's somebody who's automatically just dragging it in the dirt and not only dragging it in the dirt but saying that it's highest leader, the Holy Father himself, is going to end up in hell. And as we'll see, this is a rather prominent figure in the whole on his own right, but we can't see that yet. We have no idea who this is. We just know that the name Boniface has jumped off the page. I think this is a brilliant moment of stark and honest interiority. I stand in front of this thing that has been un believably, almost impossibly, and maybe even irredeemably corrupted. And I don't know what to say, because it's where I've put all my trust. It's where I've located the very center of my art. It is as if, at a certain moment, James Joyce and Virginia Woolf doubted stream of consciousness, or as if Faulkner, at a certain point, doubted the connection of psychology and race that is the very basis of his art. It's as if standing there, you see yourself exposed as an artist. This is one of the most honest and moving moments in Inferno. I don't know what to say. Everything I treasured seems to be turning to crap in my hands. The only person that could possibly save our pilgrim from this is Virgil. So Virgil said... 
tell him straight off. I'm not that one, not that one you believe I am. And thus I replied, as I've been told to do, Virgil gives our pilgrim the words. Our pilgrim is standing there dumbstruck at what has just happened. And so Virgil says, say it, say it out loud. Tell him I'm not the one, I'm the one. Virgil literally writes the script for our pilgrim. Why does Virgil need to prompt Dante here? It could have to do with the fact, as I've already argued, and I think it's important to argue, that Virgil wrote a poem about the founding of Rome. And Dante holds that poem in great regard because the founding of Rome is ultimately the founding of the church. And so Virgil, this man who wrote this epic about the founding of Rome, is the one to prompt our pilgrim, keep talking, keep talking, tell him you're not the one that you think I am. But note, too, that Virgil has to repeat his line, tell him, I'm not the one that you believe I'm. I'm not the one you believe I am. There's a repetition in the Florentine, and it harkens back to this guy's repetition when he says, are you already standing there? Are you already standing there? So there is a little bit of comedy in the line, a little bit of humor, as Virgil and this figure both, damned, have to repeat themselves. Don't forget, Virgil is damned. Both of the damned have to repeat themselves thereby reminding us of Virgil's position, thereby causing us to wince a little, and I think the poet hopes, thereby causing us to smile just a little bit as Virgil, the classical poet, gooses our pilgrim into talking again because the pilgrim has been thunderstruck by what's happened in front of him. Believe me, there is so much more to come, so much more thunder-striking to come in this canto. So subscribe to this podcast, like it, rate it. I would really appreciate it. And let's keep going, because if this was complicated, wait till you hear what's up next. In fact, the next passage, it's the one that broke me. Hmm, you'll have to come back for more of that next time. This is Walking with Dante, and I'm Mark Scarborough.